or a lecture, the goal of a lecture is to inform, to educate. A sermon is actually to transform. Big difference. Um, so I've given lots of lectures, but I think this is my third sermon. So uh, forgive, forgive me if I uh, sound like a lecturer. So um, just as a plug for, for the teachers out there, I I'll tell you a little bit about my background because um, if you think that teaching becomes a drudgery, um, I still remember my first grade teacher, um, Mrs. Melba Kaagbai. She was an inspiration. Um, I went to a school in, in the Philippines called Negros Mission Academy. It's a mission school. It's in a little island. There are six elementary grades and four high school grades, and by the time you're 16, you go to college. So, so uh, when I came here to the United States back in 1985, March of 1985, it was actually the end of the school year over there. And I have finished sixth grade, okay? So I uh, didn't know that school here started in September, or at least uh, for the students here in August, but sometime close to the end of summer and the beginning of fall. Um, my mom, uh, and we didn't know this, uh, we were not eligible to go to a public school because they wanted your transcripts. And they said, well, you need, you need to go to the public school system first. And so the first public school I went to was a place called Lompoc Senior High School down by Santa Barbara County, close to Vandenberg Air Force Base. Um, we were met by a counselor and he said, oh, so you're applying for 10th grade. Well, I've only done six grades so far. And my mom said, yeah, they're, they're probably gonna kick you down, so you're, you're gonna have to go through junior high, you know, seventh and eighth grade. Um, my mom said, but he's in high school. He actually did one year of high school before coming here. And the counselor, oh, okay, that's fine. So this is what we'll do. We'll put him on probation for the first semester. Um, my mom was ready to whip out her checkbook to pay the tuition, pay for the books, all that stuff. And the surprise of our lives, <laughs> right? There was none. There was no tuition. Imagine that. Even in our, you know, even in the Philippines in private school, you have to pay tuition, right? And uh, my mom said, well, what about the books and all those things? So, oh, don't worry. They're all going to be provided. And you know, my first day of school, that's what we did. The first subject, every first subject, right? You got a piece of book. They tell you to wrap it in a brown paper, right? And I'm going, this is awesome. Free education. So it turns out that um, I did okay. Well, actually, I did more than okay. Um, I graduated high school. Um, I was 16. I did my first year in a public high school, and then the second, uh, the third and fourth year, junior and senior year, uh, we transferred from Lompoc to La Sierra. Um, 
And you know, uh, La Sierra Academy, uh, they charged tuition back then. And I didn't know, you know, when you're a kid, finances is not in your category of learning. But my dad said it was expensive. And there was three of us, I had two younger brothers. Um, the uh, La Sierra University Church at that time, just like Harold was doing over here, said there is financial aid. Um, if you don't know, 40% uh, of our church budget goes to financial aid. A third of our students that goes to CVCA receives financial aid. In fact, um, you know the tuition for, just as a comparison, uh, if you go to uh, become a senior this year at Central Valley Christian Academy, the, the, the tuition is roughly around $8,500. It's under $9,000, but close, all right? If you don't have financial aid, do you know what the tuition would be? It'd be something around between nineteen dollars and $23,000 a year, okay? So... So you pay $8,500. The tuition is heavily, heavily subsidized by all of us, okay? And my dad, who uh, at that time said, I'm gonna go to the church pastor. Uh, his name was Pastor Brad Whitehead. I don't know if some of you know, know him. Um, he said, no, no, no problem. We have financial aid. And you know what? That took a lot of burden from our family. And, uh, Two years later, I graduated high school at the age of 16. I went to a university called Loma Linda University. Again, with the help of all the members here. I graduated when I was 20. I went and worked as a med tech for one year and got kind of bored and said, I want to do medicine. And all through the years, got through. So if you for some reason, give money and say, you know, what's this money going to do? I'm the product of that financial aid. Thank you. And this is what led me to the topic that I'm going to talk about. The title is called Standard of Care. Um, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a professional, you know exactly what that means. It's a legal term, a standard of care. It's defined as a reasonable duty or action that a professional should take in a particular sort of circumstance. And the operative word there is reasonable. So what happens is that because there's a standard of care, the standard of care involves the duty to perform that standard of care. If you breach that duty in tort law, that's called negligence. So in any tort law, malpractice, in my, in my case, if you're going to bring malpractice lawsuit to a physician, the plaintiff has to prove that the physician breached that duty to give the standard of care. And guess what? The standard of care is not absolute. It's a subjective standard. It's what the community has. So that the standard of care 
here in Modesto, where we don't have a tertiary medical center, might not be the same as in San Francisco, where they have UCSF, for example. All right? But the standard of care at, at, you know, establishes a minimum amount of care so that it covers most people. And if you go to a hospital and you have heart disease, you will get at least the standard of care, if not that's the minimum, you might get more. Okay? The standard of care is established by the boards of different professional practices, essentially by the government, by the people that we elect to run the, the government bureaucracy. So, when I was uh, trying to find a topic, I said, you know, um, you know, professionals and in the medical field, there's standard of care. Is there a standard of care for Christianity? Is there a standard of care for Seventh-day Adventist Christians? Is there? Um, if you open your Bibles with me, um, Ephesians 4.32, that's our key text. And um, we'll go over what I suggest to you, and this is my suggestion, that this is the standard of care for us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Just as a background, you know, Paul uh, was writing this letter uh, to the church of Ephesus. And his concern was in Ephesus, which was in Asia, Asia Minor. Um, it's, it's a multicultural church. Not unlike ours. He was concerned at the top of his agenda, the theme of Ephesians is church unity. That's where the phrase comes from, there is neither Jew or Greek, free or slave, male or female, in the family of God. That's what his, that's what his theme is. And so, if you go to Ephesians 4, 32, um, I, I have it in two different versions. One was the New International Version, but I think the, the King James Version captures the essence of this text. But let me read it to you. So Ephesians 4.32 from the, uh, the New International Version, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. All right, well, you know, there, there's two words there that, that, that essentially begs to be defined right away. Kind and compassion. Well, I like the King James Version, and this is how it reads in the King James Version. It says, and be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the word, I think, it's not necessarily kind and compassionate, but the idea that we are exhorted to be kind, to be tender-hearted, to each other, 
It's there. And you know, um, that's funny because uh, if you look at Merriam-Webster's definition of what kind is, it says here, it, it says, of a sympathetic and helpful nature, of a forbearance nature, gentle, affectionate, loving. Okay. Uh, the Cambridge Dictionary defined it as generous, helpful, and thinking about other people's feelings. All right. I, I think the, the de that definition of kindness gets limited. I think the kindness that the Bible speaks about in the text in Ephesians, in our key text, I think it's more than that. If you look at the world today, I read a, a, you know, a question. Uh, what's the difference between being nice to somebody and being kind to somebody? Have you ever asked that question? Because we use the words interchangeably now. Hey, you're nice. Or hey, that's a kind person. Or that's a nice person. But definitively, what, what is it, what's the difference? Well, let me uh, suggest to you a thing. Um, if, if, we, uh, if a stranger asks us for money, right, I need money for food, what do we usually do? Do we do the nice thing or the kind thing? And most of us will do the nice thing, which is to give money and walk away, right? Your child asks you for money. Do you do the nice thing or do you do the, the kind thing? Right? So as, as soon as that money gets, before it gets handed to the child, what's the first question? What are you spending it on, right? Why do you need money? Right? What, what does this mean? You know, I mean, that's not nice, right? But it's a kind thing to do, all right? So when, when, when the Bible says be kind and compassionate or tender-hearted towards each other, it's saying it's more than that. And I'll, right? There's an expression that says sometimes the kindest thing that you can do is the cruelest thing, right? It's not the nice thing. See, being nice involves what? You want the other person happy, a positive emotion. You want them to be comfortable. That's the nice thing to do. But if I tell my child, you know what? I'm going to spank you because you disobeyed me. That's not a nice thing to do. But it's a kind thing to do. So I think that being nice is, is more, one author in you know, one of the articles I'm reading, it, 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 it's very selfish. When you're nice to somebody, you're doing that to get something in return. 
right? Have you ever been, uh, one of my favorite shopping places to go is Nordstrom. When you talk to a salesperson at Nordstrom, I promise you, within five minutes of that conversation, that person will know you by name. They will know your name. And for what purpose? They're so nice to me. Well, they want you to buy stuff from them. They work on commission. All right? But kindness is a completely different thing. So kindness or niceness satisfies the selfish person. Kindness, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. It does things without thought of oneself. It's completely altruistic and external. Kindness is motivated by love for others. Niceness is motivated by self-gain or self-approval. We can be nice to strangers, but we are kind to our family and friends. So then, what's the difference between being kind and being loving? There are two different things. You know, I, I used to think, well, you know, if kindness is, is an attribute of love, one of the attributes of love is to be kind, right? And it's true. It, the, 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 we, we, in our society where texting is the norm now for communication, we want to use a, a minimal amount of words, and definitions get lost, aren't they? So we use loving and kindness. Man, that's, that's all the, the loving thing to do, or that's the kind thing to do. We use those things interchangeably as if they have the same meaning. Uh, I have a quote here from C.S. Lewis, and he was talking or writing about the difference between love and kindness. He said, and this is a quote, if God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records as though he has often rebuked us and condemned us. He has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, and most inexorable sense. So kindness and love are two things, but kindness is part of love. And I think that the Bible here, when it says, be kind, be tender-hearted to one another, there is an underlying assumption that you and I, as Christian brothers and sisters, that we love the other. It is selfless. One of my favorite, favorite movies, musical scenes that, that we actually watched the other day because um, it, it, it's kind of an adult theme, but I wanted our daughter to watch this because I, I think it's time. She's nine years old. But the musical is called Les Miserables. It's a masterpiece by Victor Hugo. And my favorite scene in the entire musical was I just have to tell it to you. Um, 
there's a character by the name of Jean Valjean. He's a prisoner at the start of the movie. He is there in prison and doing hard labor for the 19th year. His crime? He stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister and their kids. But the law prescribed that he'd be in jail for five years and the other for trying to get out of jail. So he stayed in jail for 19 years. At the end of the 19th year, the head police officer, Javert, releases him and says, this is your parole, but you're not out of jail yet. This is a parole, a trial before you are completely uh, free. So he was out of jail. He wanders around town looking for a job, looking for shelter, for anything. And you know, in France, it's cold. He finally stumbles on a, an abbey. He was going to sleep at the bench outside of the abbey. A bishop came out and says, please, come in. There was warmth. The, fire, the fireplace is on. The bishop and his servants provided him food and also provided him a nice warm bed with a blanket. What he did afterwards was, I guess for his situation, was normal. What he did was he woke up in the middle of the night, went to the cabinetry of the bishop, got all the silver, put it in a sack, and started running away. Well, you know, as it turns out, he was caught by the police. And they brought him back to the abbey to be confronted by the bishop. When he got to the abbey, the police officers said, see, this is Jean Valjean, he's an escaped convict, he broke his parole, and he stole your silver. Say the word, and he goes back to jail permanently. The bishop, his name is Bishop Benvenu, which, by the way, means welcome in French. He says, oh, my dear brother, you forgot the two pieces of candlesticks, which are the most expensive of the pieces. Here it is. And then he whispers to him, sell these goods, start a new life, but I have claimed your soul for God. From that moment on, you can see, and you know, he debates. You can see his debate with his mind afterwards. This guy did something unexpected that drove him crazy, essentially. How could he call me brother? How could he do this and give me all his goods? How could I, a convict, how did I sink so low to, to do this to a man who repaid me with such kindness? But from that moment on, as you can see, uh, Jean Valjean is, is a hero of virtue. He, he became, he transformed people's lives after that. A hardened man, a man's heart of stone, it, it just melted just because of the kind thing that the bishop did. I'm reminded, um, if you open your Bibles with me, 
It's in Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. Proverbs 21, 25, verse 21 and 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. I mean, that, 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 that concept of burning coal being dumped on the head of Jean Valjean was just the right appropriate image. The guy kind of made a U-turn and turned around his life. It was amazing. In, pa- in fact, you know Paul, if you look at Romans 12.20, Romans 12.20, Romans 12, 20. He quotes this same thing again. It says, in doing so, you will heap burning coals. He quotes Proverbs word for word. And he describes that as a life reformed in the Roman church. So, in the Adventist Christian church, do we have a standard of care? We as Christians, we like standards, don't we? We use that to exclude people. It's, in fact, one of the sources of our pride, isn't it? We are Christians. We have standards. The problem is that those standards sometimes are vague. They're poorly defined. We try to behave the way the standards is supposed to say, but, you know, we fail miserably. My hope is that when I talk about this topic is that it will improve our relationships, not just church family members, parents and children, children and children, husband, wives, partners. Because the way we behave, if we say we love each other, is what binds us together. I'll show you a commercial. uh, Kiran, where where is he? Can you play that commercial? This is an insurance commercial, unfortunately, but the point is there. So it's 30 seconds, but if you can if you can watch it. It doesn't have to have sound, but sound would be good. When it's people who do the right thing, they call it being responsible. When it's an insurance company, they call it Liberty Mutual. I don't know if you guys caught that. Yeah, and it comes back. See, one of, the, one of Paul's problems in the Ephesian church was, you know, their church membership had a lot of rich people, a lot of poor people, a lot of white people, black people. 
There were Ephesians, there were Colossians, there were Greeks, there were Jewish, there were Romans. There were slaves, there were free people. It was a multicultural church. And he didn't write this letter just because, you know, it was a real problem. You know, they, that, the, the multicultural, well, the multicultural um, milieu of that time was tearing the church apart. You know, he was, if you look at all his other letters, Philippians, Colossians, um, to Timothy, all that, you know, he uh, sometimes lives to talk about faith. But if you look at Ephesians as a whole, it's, it's more of a, a theme for, for, you know, he doesn't talk about faith. He talks about standards on, 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 on how to unify the church. Okay. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is difficult. You know, um, uh, one of the authors that I was reading was saying, you know, the Romans, the letter to the Roman church was written for the Reformation. It was appropriate for the Reformation. They discovered that the just live by faith, right? The Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians, guess what? It's appropriate for our time. This is, the church is struggling. I mean, if you look at our country right now, what do you think is happening? Politically, <laughs> we're in two opposite poles, right? I mean, I, 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 for some of you guys who are older than me, you, you know the history of this country. And, you know, I mean, I've been here since 1985, but uh, I didn't remember the country being this divided since, right? I mean, what's happening to our church, right? There's a huge debate right now going about whether women can be ordained or not to serve as ministers, and it's tearing the church apart. So I go back to this. I think that this is, you know, the standard of care that we as Adventist Christians have to adopt. And, and you know, standard of care is just the minimum. We can always do more. Open your Bibles with me to Luke 23, 34. Luke 23, 34. Of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's only found in Luke. This particular phrase. And it's as powerful as, as, as anything that Jesus has said. The setting, 34, Luke 23, 34. The setting of the verse and the context, Jesus was just awake all night, Thursday night. They had him through a trial. Uh, they stood in front of the crowd with Barabbas the criminal and him. And the crowd said, what? Crucify him, Jesus, compared to Barabbas. He just walked through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross that he was about to be nailed to. Thank God there was a Cyrenian there to help him. They put a crown of thorns in him. Now they're laying him on the ground, and they were pounding those nails. 
This is a painful, excruciating event. What did he say? Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Now, if you read this, this, this phrase, um, you know, he, uh, a lot of you know, scholars would, would point to you out that, you know what, he's saying that you know, to the, his executioners, maybe to the Romans, maybe to the Jewish leaders of Israel, maybe to the Jewish people. Well, Ellen White points out, if you read uh, The Desire of Ages, uh, I think it's the 78th chapter, that the entire universe was watching that scene. The entire universe, the good angels were cowering, and you know, they were at the thought of, you know, at the thought of Jesus would wipe out everything around that scene and rescue the Lord, right? But he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And, uh, you know, the, uh, could you imagine what Satan's going through? The arch enemy, he was there. His goal was to break Jesus, right? All Jesus has to do is exert his godly power and everything will pass. And he would have been done over with. But he didn't. The next few hours he died eventually. But for, for, for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I, I'm starting to understand when Jesus said, love your enemies. He didn't like, literally come and hug them and be nice to them, right? But he was praying for them. He's praying for the Father to forgive what they're doing. I mean, imagine the scene for the angels and the whole universe, right? The creator that established the foundation of the world, they were nailing him to the cross with excruciating pain. And he was screaming, like the two other thieves, they're probably cursing, right? But he's saying, forgive them. Now, I submit to you, in terms of the ultimate example of kindness, but that's it, right there. That phrase exemplifies Ephesians 4.32. He was kind to them. He was tender-hearted in the most dire of circumstances and situations. And he's praying for forgiveness. Could you imagine the coals coming down on Satan's head? But that's it. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are called to a standard of care that's more than nice, that's more than what the world defines as kind. It actually involves forgiveness. Because to be kind to somebody is what? Is to forgive them. Now, There are other things 
You know, one of the things that I like to do as a physician is I love to study physiology, pathophysiology. And you know, um, in the last decade or so, one of the amazing things that we have found in science is that we can, we, we study human behavior and what it affects us, and we have the tools to examine what happens in the brain. I'm going to ask the, um, the deacons. I have about 41 sheets here, but pass this around. If you can pass this around. There. The title of the sheet is called Kindness Health Facts. Facts being that they have been proven and reproducible by a scientific method, and there's overwhelming evidence for them. So there, there's three things on this sheet. It says, so do you know, and then the second part is kindness increases these certain things, and then kindness decreases these certain things. But as it turns out, as we practice kindness to each other, to one another, they're actually good for us, physiologically. Uh, you know, uh, for example, it says, do you know that kindness is teachable? And you can, see, you can look at there. It's, it's kind of a weight training. Uh, I go to the gym to build my muscles, but kindness, you can do the same thing. We found that people that actually build up their compassion muscle and respond to others suffering with care and desire to help. Ah, kindness is contagious. You saw that in the commercial, right? An act of kindness is not an isolated event. It stumbles on, whether you see or not, whether you know or not. Those, those church members that gave me financial aid in 1986 and 87 and 88, they have no idea. I'm a physician now. I'm here in your church. You see? Um, if, uh, uh, if you have depression, in the, it says kindness decreases depression here. Um, Stephen Post, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, found that when we give of ourselves, everything more life satisfaction to self-realization and physical health is significantly improved. Mortality, dying is delayed, depression is reduced, and well-being and good fortune are increased. Um, you know that kindness increases lifespan? Right here. Kindness increases lifespan. People who volunteer tend to experience fewer aches and pains. Giving help to others protects overall health twice as much as aspirin. How many of us are in aspirin? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, but twice as much aspirin. You know, there's two drugs. I, my specialty is cardiovascular anesthesiology, so I see a lot of heart attacks and, and things like that. But there's two drugs in medicine over the last two decades that's made a huge imp uh, impact. Aspirin and statins. Those are two drugs. You can see that the, the effect of it is amazing. But it's saying here that the act of kindness the effect is twice as much as an aspirin, all right? Um, it increases the love hormone. We're finding out more about oxytocin. Oxytocin is that drug when you're a mother and you hear the baby cry, makes you lactate. 
Well, it's more than that. You know, if you have good interaction with another, hugging, for example, a person, you can measure their oxytocin level spike. We are controlled by hormones in our body that has instantaneous effect. And the effect of oxytocin, and you can see it, Witnessing acts of kindness produces oxytocin, occasionally referred to as the love hormone, which aids in lowering blood pressure and improving overall heart health. Oxytocin also increases our self-esteem and optimism, which is extra helpful when we're anxious or shy in social situations. You know why kids run to mama and papa and hug? It's addicting, this hormone is addicting. Um, uh, Dave. He loves, he's a runner, he's a triathlete, okay? And one of the things about doing uh, rigorous exercise is you get these body endorphins. These body endorphins are like, they're, they're like nat natural opioids. They're addicting. And you know what, oxytocin? That's why kindness is teachable and it's infectious because it makes people feel good. It cures depression. I mean, you can... You can read stories of philanthropists over and over and over again in history, right? They got sick and sick and sick. And then what they did was they started helping people, establishing foundations, hospitals, you know, schools, all that stuff. And guess what happened? Their lives find. So the Bible is not saying be kind just because we want to have healthy lives. That's a bonus. but it builds, as a Christian community, cohesiveness. If we are kind and tender-hearted toward each other, we can deal with the outside world. That's why this, this, this kindness that springs out of love, it's like the glue that holds us together. I was gonna say an application for my sermon, and here it is. You know, when we're kind to others, there's one application. If you look at any mental illness, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, all that stuff, what it does is it focuses on ourselves. <laughs> okay, and doing a kind thing, something tender-hearted, it involves what? We come out of ourselves. It avoids this obsessive introspection that occurs. You know, this cycle that keeps going, going, going. Um, and that involves being kind, being tender-hearted, and if somebody has wronged you, forgiving. There's a whole host, I mean, I have articles to show you, uh, but we're running out of time. But forgiveness, um, I trained at Hopkins. They have produced an article at, at their, at their um, um, Center for Mental Health. The act of forgiving somebody, truly forgiving somebody, lifts all kinds of stuff. It reduces your cortisol level, reduces your stress hormone, reduces your blood pressure. You know, they've even done experiments where students on one side say, write an event that, that has you offended and you forgave. And then on one side, write the events and write that you didn't forgive. Okay, and they did this repeatedly with different populations. And the students who forgave, they did better in physical fitness tasks. 
But forgiveness releases that power, you know, and uh, we know now from physiology that if you ruminate on that not forgiving somebody, it consumes glucose, the amino acids, it, it essentially fuels the cells to, to think about the, the act that offended you. And therefore, you have no energy for other things. So, you know, we only have, you know, um, he, when, when we live, you know, it, it's all about energy management. If we're spending energy ruminating on a wrong that keeps us, you know, this, um, we're consuming energy on the wrong priority rather than the others. See, the focus of being kind and compassionate or tender-hearted is not to look at ourselves, it's to look at others. So I encourage people, as an application, get involved. There's, there's a country song that says, right? If you have a choice between standing or dancing, get up and dance, get, up and dance. get involved. You know, it's, um, in any organization, whether our church or other churches or uh, hospital or corporation, whatever it is, think of any organizational entity, right? Um, uh, only 20% of the members participate. It's, it's a constant. And this is my challenge for Parkwood. If we can get to 25% or even 30%, that would be great. I love what Audrey did with, our, with that harp. But did you feel good listening to that harp? That's oxytocin. You see, see, you see an act of kindness doesn't, it's not an isolated event. And when we get involved, we are more forgiving. When you interact with other people, you see that they're as weak as you are, that they have failings as you are. It's easier to forgive when we see our failings. That's why I suggest to you that this verse, uh, Ephesians 4.32, I read it again. And I like the King James Version. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And Jesus has left us that ultimate example when he was praying to forgive even his tormentors close to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us life. We are designed to live for others. The Bible, Paul, and his writings to the Ephesians were simply pointing out the right way. Give us the spirit of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness in dealing with each other. It gives us power, and we'll be able to deal with the outside world. There's a lot of work to be done and there's few workers. We need every power that we have to bring your message to a dying world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.